Please turn with me now to the Gospel according to Matthew in chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, as we continue on in these uh, last days of Jesus in uh, Jerusalem and His continuing confrontations uh, with the leaders of Judaism. So Matthew chapter 22, reading from verse 23, this is on page 828 of the church Bibles. The same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seven. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at His teaching. Let us pray. Almighty God, as we come now to study Your holy, inerrant, and infallible Word this morning, we pray for the ministry of Your Spirit to lead us in our studies. For we know that as we open Your Word, we are standing on holy ground. The text that we hold in our hands is a holy text because it comes to us from the very mouth of God. And so we pray for Your Spirit that He would give us care and guidance as we read and examine these words, that He would give us an openness of mind and heart that we might listen to what You're saying to us. Father, come and bless Your people. Speak to us. For we, your servants, are listening. Amen. Well, the leaders of the temple uh, are in the midst of, of trying to undermine Jesus. They're trying to discredit him before his followers, and they're trying to coax him into a trap in which he will give them some crucial thing that they can then take to Pilate and prosecute him before the Roman governor. The leaders of the temple want to get rid of Jesus. Ever since He has arrived in Jerusalem, He has risen above the point of, of simply being a nuisance, and now He is actively a threat to their position and to their honor and their glory and, and even to their power. Jesus has come into Jerusalem explicitly claiming to be the Messiah of the Old Testament expectation. And He has, as the Messiah, taken on the leaders of Judaism in public and powerful ways, and He has accused them of being the true enemies of God and of His people. 
And so they want to silence him. They want to get rid of him. And what we find ourselves in this morning, we find ourselves in the midst of of a concerted effort to that end. The religious leaders are are leading here a a three-pronged attack on Jesus that they are hoping will be inescapable. Last week, we saw how the Pharisees sent their disciples with the Herodians to get Jesus to make a statement as to whether or not a faithful Jew should pay taxes to Caesar. It was the attempt to trap him with inflammatory politics, to back him into a corner so that he either paints himself as a revolutionary opposed to Caesar and Rome, or as an accommodationist whose primary loyalties lie with political peace rather than with religious purity. It was, of course, a tactic that failed spectacularly. Jesus, knowing what they were doing, responded by not allowing himself to be led down the path of of either or, but demonstrating to his listeners that fidelity to the civil magistrate is in reality a part of our obedience to God. He answered them that it's not an either-or, it's a both-and. And his response, we read, you remember in verse 22, was so profound that it left them marveling at what they had heard. Instead of finding themselves in the positions of supremacy as they expected when they, when they outlined this scenario to Jesus, they found themselves upside down marveling that he had been able to give this answer to what they had thought was an inescapable trap. And so they simply leave him, Matthew says, and go away. Next week, we'll see them come back, and they'll try to spear Jesus on a, on a spear of biblical hermeneutics. And they'll try to to get him to elevate one of God's commands above the others. They'll try to get him into a a place where he he will express a compromised view of Scripture, an inadequate interpretation of the Old Testament that will condemn him before the eyes of the people and show that he is not a man worth following. But here in this middle scenario, this middle scene, They come to Jesus. The leaders of Judaism, the leaders of the temple come to Jesus. And here, they really get down to a very base approach as they try to make a fool out of Jesus by asking Him about eschatology and specifically how marriage will work after the resurrection. Now, it's important here, as we look at this this middle confrontation, it is important that we understand that what they are doing with this question is that they are simply trying to ridicule Jesus and make a fool out of Him before everyone who is watching. The first challenge, verses 50 through 22, at least had a facade of intellectual rigor as they posed this this ethical dilemma. You remember we noted this, this was a legitimate debate that was raging in the culture, that had been raging in the culture ever since 6 AD when the poll tax had been introduced. And so in that first confrontation, there was at least a veneer 
of, of intellectual debate, that they were really trying to seek Jesus' wisdom in an admittedly difficult matter. And in the confrontation that we'll look at last week, the last of the three, there is again at least an appearance of serious inquiry as to which part of the law might be given priority and thereby help interpret the rest of the commandments. But there's none of that here. In this second confrontation, you understand that there's no subtlety here. There's no nuance here. There's no facade of, of intellectual rigor. What happens in verses 23 through 33 is simply a bold-faced attempt to outright humiliate Jesus by posing a seemingly ridiculous scenario. In order to understand this, we have to understand who Jesus' examiners are here. The men who come up to Jesus are, Matthew tells us, uh, Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were arguably amongst the most powerful Jews in first century Jerusalem. Right? When we think of first century Judaism, we think of the Pharisees, right? They've almost become a, a, a cliched shorthand for first century Judaism. But we have to understand, it was actually the Sadducees who held the power. The Sadducees were comprised of mostly aristocrats and prominent priestly families, and it was the Sadducees that dominated Israel's ruling council, the Sanhedrin. And it was the Sadducees that controlled the administration of the temple. These are powerful men, men who controlled the arena in which Jesus is meeting with his opponents. But what is particularly significant about them here is, is not so much their political position, but rather it is their distinctive views on theology. Now, when we come to think about the Sadducees, they can be hard for us to get our, our minds around. And it's difficult to know how to characterize them because they don't fit into our categories. We want to call them liberals on one hand, as we'll see in a minute. We might also be tempted to call them conservatives on another hand, as we'll see in a minute, but it doesn't really fit. And so maybe the best way to understand them is as, as deists. Josephus, the first century Roman historian, characterizes them as men whose ideas focused on their contempt for supernatural explanations. So, Josephus writes that they do not believe in fate and place God beyond doing anything evil or even seeing it, and as a result, attribute everything to human free will and have nothing to do with judgment and rewards or penalties after death. What complicates the Sadducees is that they only held the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, as having full scriptural authority, and they only held to doctrines that could be found in those books. And so, what that means is that these men come up to Jesus here with the presupposition that bodily resurrection, which is not found explicitly in the first five books of the Bible, is just absurd. To them, Sheol, the grave, was the absolute final resting place of the body. 
Yes, they would agree that the soul is immortal, but the body, once it is buried, is in the grave to stay. There's no bodily resurrection because we don't read about that until Daniel, and they didn't consider Daniel to be Scripture, and therefore it was a myth. It was something that was a later invention and something that was not to be believed. And so the scenario that they bring to Jesus is one that coming from their presuppositions, they consider to be absolutely absurd because it is built on an absurd premise that bodies will one day rise from the grave. They think that's laughable, but they know that Jesus holds to bodily resurrection. They know that He is following a relatively conservative understanding of the Old Testament, and He holds to a bodily resurrection. And so, they want to come up, and they want to play these word games with Jesus, because they want Him to to see, they want everybody to see that His position is really indefensible and ultimately ridiculous. And so, they present the scenario of this poor woman whose husband dies, and then she's married by her brother-in-law, and he in turn dies, and this woman is married by another brother, and this pattern continues all the way down to the seventh and seemingly last brother. It is, if we just stop and look at it, uh, it's it's a heartbreaking situation. And it, it may well be uh, hypothetical, but, but Matthew tells us that these Sadducees opened by saying in verse 25, now there were seven brothers among us, implying that this had actually happened to a woman that they knew. This poor woman. The heartache, I think, of this woman is, is unimaginable. She has she is married these men, and she has watched all seven of her husbands die. And her heartache has only been mitigated by the honorable conduct of the brothers who have followed the law of leveret marriage in Deuteronomy 25, and they have taken care of this woman, and they have protected her, and they have provided for her. But the Sadducees present her situation to Jesus, and they ask Him, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? The clear implication is that if there is a bodily resurrection, then there's going to be, on that day, a dramatic conflict. Either this woman will be one man's wife at the expense of the others, presumably the first or the seventh, or she'll have multiple husbands. And that concept was just out of the question in the first century. They would concede, perhaps, that there's an argument for multiple wives. You can get that from the Old Testament, that a man can have multiple wives, that polygamy certainly being practiced, but never polyandry, never one woman with multiple wives. And so, so what's going to happen, Jesus? When they're all raised from their graves and they meet together again, what's the situation with this woman? We can almost imagine them asking this with a slight smirk on their face. How are you going to get out of this one, Jesus? But Jesus answers them with a forceful rebuttal, and in the strongest terms, He says to them, bluntly, you are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Now, don't miss how strong a statement that is. Jesus says to them, 
that they have no room to think that they are nearly as clever as they think they are, and that in reality, their question demonstrates not only the reasonableness of their position, uh, not the reasonableness of their position as they assumed, but instead it reveals a profound ignorance, not only of the, the Word of God, but of God Himself. Jesus says, you understand what you have just said shows that you are utterly ignorant and you have no idea about the things of which you are speaking. And this can be difficult for us to get our heads around because, as I said, we're tempted to think of the Sadducees as theological liberals. We're tempted to hear of somebody who denies physical resurrection and who denies the supernatural as someone who doesn't hold Scripture in the highest regard. But we have to understand that it was actually their profound commitment to Scripture that drove them in these beliefs. The major difference being, of course, that they thought the only authoritative Scripture were the five books that had been written by Moses. But they were so passionately committed to those books. They were so passionately committed to, to their theologically rigorous examination of these books that the Sadducees looked down on the Pharisees and regarded them as the theological liberals. Right? Imagine thinking a Pharisee is a liberal. But that's how, how self-assured they were in their position. That, that they had the true Scripture, and the Pharisees had departed because they had added book after book into the canon, books that, in their opinion, should never be regarded as Scripture. And then on top of that, the Pharisees observed the intertestamental tradition of the elders. So here are the Sadducees, men who rigorously hold to these five books of Scripture, and to them the Pharisees are liberals because they have added to it, and, and they even add human tradition to it. The Sadducees consider themselves in many regards to be the theological and religious conservatives. And so, for Jesus to answer them by saying that their question has revealed that they do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God, it's one of these moments where if we in our mind's eye just imagine this scene, we have to imagine these Sadducees rocking back on their heels with the force of this statement. This is shocking, right? We can imagine the crowd gasping audibly as Jesus turns and confronts His examiners like this. Jesus says they don't know either of these things. They may know the, the content of the Pentateuch like the back of their hands, I mean, they may know those, those five books backwards and forwards, but he says they don't know those books. Their question reveals that they have not truly understood those books. And because they did not know the Scriptures, then they didn't know the God of those Scriptures. Their misunderstanding of the Word of God has led to a fundamental misunderstanding of the God of the Word. Their incorrect interpretation has meant that they have formed a God in their own image, and they had failed to understand who He truly is and what He is doing to redeem His people. Jesus says, your starting point is wrong, and so your conclusion is wrong. Everything about this is wrong. 
And to illustrate that, Jesus asked them about one of the most fundamental passages in those five books of Moses, God's self-revelation to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. Right, it's an absolutely fundamental point in the history of redemption. Here was God, in response to His covenant promises, coming to redeem His people from their slavery and deliver them into the land of promise. It's an absolutely pinnacle moment in the story of redemption. Here is, we could say, here is Aslan on the move, coming to, coming to rescue His people, to free them from their slavery, to bring them into the perfect freedom of union with God. And as God calls Moses to be the delegated leader of that endeavor, He begins by introducing Himself to Moses, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of, of Jacob. Right? It was a moment of, of paradigm-shifting, theologically-defining self-revelation. Here is God revealing Himself and really defining Himself in terms of His covenant promises. Here was God revealing Himself, defining Himself, not here as the Creator of the heavens and the earth, which He could have. Defining Himself not in terms of being the sustainer of life, which He could have. Defining Himself, not even yet, as, as Yahweh, as Jehovah, that great name that encapsulates God's self-sufficiency, that great I Am. But right here at the beginning of this redemptive adventure, God calls Moses to turn from shepherding Jethro's sheep to shepherding the flock of God. And he says to Moses, you must understand who I am. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, there is, there's a whole load that is packed into that sentence. It's one of these sentences in Scripture that we can camp out on for, for days, weeks. But Jesus draws out just one aspect of it to condemn His opponents. He says to them, that statement alone in their own Scriptures anticipates the resurrection of the dead because it shows that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. God didn't say to Moses, I was the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He says, I am their God now, presently. It is a statement that says that the covenant that God makes with His people is too strong to be terminated by death. One theologian, R.T. France, said, to be associated with the living God is to be taken beyond the temporary life of earth into a relationship which lasts as long as God lasts. Those with whom the living God identifies Himself cannot be truly dead, and therefore they must be alive with Him after their earthly life is finished. Death entered into the world, you know, as, as the curse for Adam's sin against God. And so there's simply could be no true redemption from sin in which that curse is not overturned and death itself put to death. 
right? In order for God to be this God, to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to be the God of the covenants, the God of redemption. He's, he was working out the redemption first promise right at the fall in Genesis 3.15. Through those successive covenant promises, it means that death could never have the final say. It meant necessarily that the body of the believer could not stay in the grave. It means necessarily that Sheol could not have the last word. For there to be true redemption, there must be a return to Eden, to the fullness of, of true bodily, physical, good life that God had established there. And so, there must be a physical resurrection. There must be a continuity in which we live, not simply as disembodied spirits, but as true persons in the presence of God in the physical new creation. However, the Sadducees did make a good point. If it is true, if all that is true, and there will be a physical resurrection from the, 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 from the dead. Then what about this poor widow? Whose husband shall she be in the resurrection? And Jesus' response is to show them that while there is a necessary continuity that necessitates the bodily resurrection as part of the gospel, He says there is also a fundamental discontinuity with that first Eden. Jesus says, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in, in heaven. Now, we might wonder why on earth that would be. Right? After all, marriage was part of God's good pre-fall creation. It is in the union of, of Adam and Eve that we see God's gift of marriage most purely expressed. It was God who before the fall, before sin's entry into the world, had declared that it was not good for man to be alone. You remember that tremendously profound point, that here is, here is Adam in the midst of this creation that God has declared good and good and good, punctuating that creation week with this great declaration that everything that he was doing is good, and yet there was something that was not good found there, and it was Adam's loneliness. And so, God had created for Adam a, a, a wife, and He had then united them in this one flesh intimacy. It was all good and part of this good creation not a concession of the fall, but part of God's plan. And so, if we think about redemption as this great continuity, our, our return back to Eden, our, our return back into that, into that fellowship with God and His perfect creation, unstained by sin and the effects of sin, our assumption would be that we would be married there, and that our marriages would be untinged by sin and the effects of sin, that they would be the best marriages that we had ever enjoyed. Why, why wouldn't it be there? But here Jesus says that after the resurrection, that is after the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth, that, that Jesus will 
will bring to being when He returns to establish His kingdom in all of its fullness. He says, in that kingdom, there will be no marriage. But instead, the people of God will be like the angels, neither marrying a term that relates primarily to men or being given in marriage, a term that primarily relates to women. The two being put together here really is an emphatic statement that this just won't be present. We may very well wonder, well, why not? But after all, we tend to like our spouses. I hope you like your spouse. And if we admitted there's something sad about the notion of marriage being this temporary affair, confined to this present creation. Our marriages have their ups and their downs. They have their bumps and their difficulties. But we know our marriages are good, even with the tinge of sin. And so, why would God not have marriage in the new creation? Well, Jesus doesn't say. He just says that it will be so. This is the truth. This doesn't trip him up. This doesn't undermine his position that, of course, there will be resurrection there. There will be the resurrection of the of bodily resurrection because there must be this return to, to Eden, something he proves from the Sadducees' own scriptures. And then he says, but here's the aspect that you're presuming. You're presuming there'll be marriage there, but there won't be marriage there. And he doesn't tell us why. There's mystery that surrounds this. But I think we can press a little further. We can say at the very least that there won't be marriage in the new creation because it is not simply a return to Eden. It is an entry into Eden perfected. Redemption is not simply to go back to the land of Adam. It is rather to enter the land that would have been if Adam had not sinned against God and had then been permitted to go on and eat of the tree of life. And so, while it might seem like a loss, it's really an addition by subtraction. What we will find in the new heavens and the new earth is something that will transcend the beauties and the glories of our present marriage. It is not that God is taking a good thing away from you in the new heavens and the new earth. It is that He is giving to you something that will transcend the good thing that you have now, something that will cause our, our temporary marriages to pale in comparison as we see God's good creation brought to its perfect fullness. It's what we see in Ephesians 5, isn't it? And Paul describes marriages as being a reflection, an illustration of Christ's union with His bride, the church. Now, on the one hand, he says that to be instructive for our own earthly marriages. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave Himself up for her. Wives, serve your husbands as the church loves and serves her bridegroom, Christ. But Paul goes on there, and he quotes that passage from, from Genesis in which the two are made one flesh, and he says, and this mystery is profound, but I am speaking of Christ and the church. He goes on, and he says, listen, the union 
that we have in our earthly marriages is a union that, that anticipates the perfect union that will be brought about when Christ is united to His church when He returns. What we have here will be replaced by something greater, a greater marriage, the marriage that we find in Revelation chapter 19 when the Apostle Paul describes the union of Christ and the church. Writing these words, he says, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, this is a, this is a heavenly choir, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. As John in, the, in Revelation anticipates the day when Christ returns and makes all things new for all of the confusing and difficult imagery that is there, this is not confusing and difficult. He says that union of Christ with His church in the new heavens and the new earth, it will be like the, the greatest marriage that you have ever seen as the bridegroom comes out and He welcomes His, his bride, beautiful, purified before Him. Our earthly marriages, I think they are saying, are, are temporary because they foreshadow something that is almost incomprehensibly wonderful a future marriage of Christ and His people that will absolutely blow your mind as you stand and you hear this heavenly chorus declaring this union. There is more, of course, we could say about this, but the Sadducees wanted to humiliate Jesus. They wanted to trip him up. They wanted to undermine him before those who had followed him. They wanted to make a, a fool out of him by, by posing a seemingly ridiculous scenario. But in response, Jesus not only answers them effectively, but in doing so, he reveals more of the glories of his kingdom. He takes their attack and he turns it into this teachable moment, and he says, listen, the kingdom that I have come to establish, it's a return to Eden, where death will be overturned, and you'll be raised from the dead, and you'll be given that life, but understand it's more than that. It's entry into a perfect Eden, so that everyone who's united to, to Christ by faith, who has had their filthy rags of their sin replaced by the beauties of His righteousness, they will enter into a union with Him, the, the joys and glories of which will make these earthly temporary marriages pale in comparison. Instead of undermining Him, the Sadducees simply set up an opportunity for Jesus to unfold even more of His glories as the one who is fulfilling His covenant promises who is bringing that word to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to fulfillment, who is establishing a kingdom of unimaginably glorious life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, there is mystery here, and we do not know all of what this means or, or what this will look like. 
But what you have revealed to us, we can say this morning, in a sense, it's, it's enough for us to think of the glories of this kingdom, this, this magnificent new heavens and this new earth where we will dwell bodily, physically with God forevermore, united to you as a bride is united to her husband in, in what Paul goes so far as to call a one-flesh union. Oh, Lord, this is glorious. We pray that you would bless this to us, that you would help us to get our minds and our hearts around more and more of what this means, and that it would cause us not then to grow distant from our earthly marriages as we anticipate that perfect marriage, but, but all the more that it would drive us then to love our spouses, to love our husbands, our, our wives. Or as Paul says in Ephesians 5, this, this is two-faced. We, we think of Christ in this church, and we, we think of husbands and wives. And so we pray that you would help us to pursue marriages that reflect and anticipate that coming reality, that it might even be part of our witness to this world as we tell them of the glories of Christ and His kingdom. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.